Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. We are with Chris Williams at Brooks Winery. It is January 10th, 2018. And we're gonna start with the first question, which is why wine? Uh, well, wine for me um, is something that I more fell into. Uh, a lot of people enter this industry through a passion for wine. Uh, I was fairly ignorant of wine and didn't really know anything about wine. Um, but meeting Jimmy and a relationship forming there and coming out and starting to work in the industry uh, I, I fell in love with the job of winemaking um, and then my palate as I started to learn my palate and started to learn more about wine um, is when I really started to appreciate wine but for me it was really an entrance through the job itself and not through wine. Yeah. How did you get that first introductory job? Um, well I was actually uh, in between I was going through a divorce and kind of in between jobs uh, I had a newborn and a one-year-old I was taking care of um, and I was selling old Moto Guzzi parts that I had collected for years. Uh, and Jimmy happened to have a Moto Guzzi and responded to an ad for parts. And uh, I came out and met him and just kind of formed a relationship and started talking with him. And a few weeks later, he wanted me to come out and uh, come out and do an event at uh, Willa Kinsey, help do a wine club event. Uh, I got to pour. Uh, everybody was having a lot of fun. It was a really neat experience. And it was, it was just kind of a a happenstance event for me. So how did you go from just doing a couple wine tasting events to actually having a job in the industry? Um, well just through doing a couple of those and coming out to Willa Kinsey, uh, they ended up asking me to come out and do some work pre-harvest for a couple months um, and at that time it was a good idea. I mean it was a new a new start for me and something that we're all new people and everything was brand new and it's always fun to kind of start over on something and so coming out to Willa Kinsey and working, worked through Harvest and uh, really enjoyed myself, enjoyed building that kind of friendship with Jimmy and the other people around there and then when Jimmy left the following year to go to Mesera, he uh, basically asked if I'd come over as the assistant and so I did. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about how your time at Willa Kinsey and Mesera um, shaped you as a winemaker? Um, I would say my time at Willa Kinsey really just gave me a good introduction. Willa Kinsey was a very um, very family oriented, you know, I mean the whole crew was really like a big family. I know coming there and working, I worked at a lot of different places where you know you have relationships with work people and you, you have friendships and everything but really there it felt like much more of a family. Everybody was really involved with what other people were doing um, the, the, the lunches that they used to do where everybody would make a lunch for a different day of the week. I mean, it was just a really a great feeling when you were there and I really liked being there. So the winemaking portion of it, what it taught me is that you work a lot of hours in the wine industry, especially during harvest. Um, I would come in with Jimmy and five o'clock in the morning and we'd work until midnight, one o'clock, get closed up and we'd race back to his house, go to sleep for a few hours and come back. But that that feeling you got after working so hard was really a, a greater appreciation for what you were doing. Mm -hmm. And then can you tell us a little bit about Jimmy, what he was like? 
um, he was just—he was just a great person. I mean, he could be—he could be happy. He could be stubborn. He could be depressed. He could be uh, really involved or interested and obsessed with something. Like when we found out about Unimogs and wanted to get involved in that. And I mean, it was—he was just such a personality that everything he did from the smallest thing to the biggest thing, he had a, a, a feeling for. So whether that made him happy or sad, he had that emotion and that passion and that drive to do something. And so it was fun being around him. Um, I didn't honestly have a lot of friends. Once I moved back to Oregon and had our second kid, um, it was really more about taking care of the kids and stuff. And so meeting somebody like Jimmy and having that presence and, and going around with them and everywhere he went, everybody knew him and it was just a kind of a, an awe-inspiring experience for me and it was really, it was really neat and it made, it, I think it shaped the way I looked at other people and friends. So mm -hmm. it was, it was definitely, the whole experience for me was definitely life-changing, not only in the fact that I had a new job and that I was doing something different, but just the whole aspect of kind of what was going on. Uh, what's your favorite memory of Jimmy? Uh, favorite memory? Um, well, one of my favorites definitely um, when he came into work one day and, and had found this picture, this Unimog, and was watching a YouTube video of Unimogs and he was immediately obsessed with he wanted to find Unimog and find out about how he could get one and he wanted to know more about him and I came into work that morning and he was on on the internet looking at a picture of one and everything and he he, he showed me and he was so excited and everything I, I, I looked at him I said well there's a guy down the street from my house like a quarter mile that's got three or four of those out in front of his house and a whole bunch of he's like no not these things these are like really rare there's not many of these around I was like, no, nah, I'm pretty sure there's there's a whole bunch of them down there. All right, well, what, lunchtime, we'll, we'll drive over there and check it out. And so lunchtime, we went back into Sheridan and went over to what is actually Dr. Malloy's house, um, an old a doctor that's a local doctor there that has an old century farm. And sure enough, he had four or five Unimogs sitting out front and a couple of Pinsgauers, Halflingers, all these different European military vehicles. And so we pulled in, parked, and kind of poked around a little bit and finally found Jim and started talking with him. And I mean, Jimmy was just so excited. I mean, this was like something he had just, just kind of thought about and didn't know how long he would take to finally like get one or find one and everything. And here it was the next day. We got to go out and look at a whole bunch of them. So he, he actually, that's where we got Dirk's phone number who Jimmy about a year later finally bought a Unimog from. In um, 2004, Jimmy died. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the days leading up to that and what happened after his death? Okay, so um, the days leading up to it were, were pretty normal. It was Labor Day. I was actually heading down to the coast um, to go to Devil's Lake and hang out for a few days uh, when it happened. Uh, it, I mean, everything was pretty normal before that. Everything was pretty abnormal after that. I mean, it was it was such a shocker that, I don't know, it was, I basically stayed at the coast for a couple of days after that and just kind of sat there and just, I don't know, tried to take it in and understand and everything. And so when we got back and we did the, did the uh, celebration of life event at the vineyard and everything and started talking about doing 
continuing and what we were going to do with with the winery and everything. It was, I don't know, it was all very surreal. It, it was a very strange moment in the sense that it, it was so out of left field that I, I just, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so this was also one of the first harvests uh, on your own. Um, what was going through your head at the time and um, how did you go about doing that harvest? Um, yeah, the, the first harvest was, so we were doing the Maestra wines and then we were also doing Domingue two wines there, uh, Tuluk Lane wines there, the Jimmy was going to be overseeing all of that. Um, it, it was, I don't know, it, it, was a, it was a very, I don't know, it was hard but I just looked at it as, you know, I, I learned from him, I actually did pay attention when we were making wine all those years, it was to me never with the intent of going off and being a head winemaker. I don't know, I liked the, the friendship we had and the workability we had were, were good for long term into Brooks's own establishment and everything. So I, it was never for me a, a building or a stepping stone onto something else. Um, so when, when he passed away and everybody basically just turned to me and said then, all right, you're up. I mean, this, so, and the fact that everybody put their confidence in me and didn't try to say, well, we need like consultants and we need to have somebody else come in or anything else. I took that as other people can see their confidence in me, so there's really no reason why I shouldn't have confidence in myself anyway. And so we just did, we just did. I mean, me and Linda, who was our, we had an intern that was supposed to come out beforehand and we got a hold of her and, and let her know that he had passed away, but we definitely still wanted her to come out and work and she was my, she was my right-hand person that year, and we just worked a lot and just got it done. Why did you decide to um, go over to Brooks full-time full and continue that winery with Janie? Um, because again, my, my whole establishment in the wine industry was with Jimmy. So even though we were working at Willa Kinsey, it was my relationship and my friendship that I was building with him that drew me there. And then leaving with him to go to Maestra, again, I was never, these were never stepping stones for me to go on and do something else. So once it kind of came down to, you know, whether we were going to continue, and if we were, then we were going to need a full-time person to do it. I mean, I never, there was never a, a consideration in my mind. It was, this is what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. What were those talks like in the first couple of years? Um, and and whenever you full-time went to Brooks with Janie, like how, what did you, what were your visions of the winery? Um, I think at that point our main vision was just to make sure we continued to make good wines. It wasn't necessarily about growing to be huge. We were in Custom Crush and we knew that it would take a certain amount of cases before we could afford to have our own winery and we could afford to invest in the equipment and everything else. But those first few years it was it was really more about just I don't know figuring it out Janie was so new to the industry she knew nothing about it I knew nothing about really the the running of a winery and everything so it was a, it was a learning experience for both of us in a time with custom crush and we didn't have to take care of all that outside stuff and we could really just focus on the wines that was our conversations were really just about making the best wines and and 
a few years later finally talking about maybe growing to get to the point. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, did you think Brooks Winery would still be around in 2018? Um, I hoped it would. I mean, I, I, I feel very attached to Jimmy, so to me, the success of the winery, it makes me very proud to, to be able to be involved in it. And so when I look back at then, there was no reason why I, I didn't think that we could, we could continue on. But in, in this industry, it's nothing is a guarantee, so. And then why do you think the, and Jimmy Brooks's story resonates with people so much? Um, I think I think the story of community definitely re definitely resonates. Um, the fact that everybody did kind of step in without any hesitation. Um, why Jimmy in particular? Uh, Jimmy was just a he was I don't know he was a very well liked person and I mean, he wasn't liked by everybody. I mean, but he was a very well liked person and. He, he had such a presence in the wine community and the different involvement in the Riesling and involvement in IPNC and involvement in OPC and all the different with relationships he had with all the different winemakers. He was kind of part of that generation that was coming up and making wines. And so he was, it was so out of left field that, you know, everybody, again, without any hesitation at all, completely stepped up and, and was willing to help out. And it was really because of him. I mean, it was. Uh, what's your winemaker philosophy? Uh, my winemaking philosophy, I, I basically low impact winemaking. So mm -hmm. we try to stay, to keep our handprint off of the wine as much as possible. Really bring things in, um, not do any alterations or anything. Really put them into small lot fermentations. So anywhere from one to three tons maximum. Uh, and just really take care of the ferments, you know, try to keep them as cool as possible so we can extend them and make them as long as possible, all native fermentation, so we don't want to have to add anything. We want to let the yeasts that are there establish themselves, not necessarily from the vineyard, it'll be yeasts that come from wherever. I mean, they can definitely be a house yeast or anything in the air or something that came in along the way, but we want to make sure that we let whatever it is kind of do its thing. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, again, very hands-off, just taking care of things, cleaning things really well, and keeping things turned over and covered up. And then into barrel, uh, about two-thirds of Pinot production does about 10 months in barrel, and then uh, the other third stays in for about 18 months. So a lot of single vineyard things. We like to be able to show expressions of single vineyards, and if I get three different blocks from a particular vineyard, I'm going to use all three of those portions in the blend of that to really show you a good portion of everything I get. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's kind of my best expression that I can get from that single vineyard, not necessarily these two barrels I like the best, and that's my expression of the vineyard. I really want to show everything, and that's estate included. Yeah. Has it been hard keeping that philosophy as production grows at Brooks? Um, no, just more barrels to stack. <laughs> I mean, it's it's always been hard kind of having, <laughs> yeah, it gets a little hard sometimes. Mm -hmm. But o overall, it's 
I don't know. I think it's a good it's a good way for me, my best way that I can think of to show you what I'm getting from the grower as much as I as I'm showing you what I'm making. So I'm leaving my handprint off of it and really giving you as best representation of that grower's fruit. And how does the biodynamic practices fit into that? Um, it really established kind of a lot of what we do here now because when Jimmy was bringing the biodynamics in early on and we started doing the Riesling in 02, um, back then we did, we used a lot more commercial yeast for the Pinots. Um, we did alterations if we had to. Um, it was really more about trying to make sure that that particular wine, because there wasn't necessarily as much of it, made a complete wine. Whereas once we grew to a certain size and had so many different things to work with, bringing that biodynamic aspect into the winery and not messing with anything and not altering anything um, made it a lot easier actually because we had so many different things to work with we could make a complete wine out of picking pieces rather than trying to change them ahead of time. And so can you talk a little bit about the focus um, on Riesling here at Brooks? Yeah so Riesling was definitely um, Jimmy's biggest passion uh, and since the fact that I didn't really have a palate when I first got into the industry, uh, he poured me a lot of Riesling and I drank a lot of Riesling and then I definitely developed a, a, a love for Riesling also, um, in addition to Muscat. <laughs> um, but Riesling is, I don't know, it just, it's such a, it's such a great wine, it has such a wide profile, it can have so many different characteristics, it can be so many different things, it's just a, it's, it's a fun wine to work with, and the, and the fact that it really does show the expression of where it comes from so well that you can really taste certain things in certain um, vineyards each year and to really see that what it being grown there does. And we just, I don't know, I love Riesling. I drink Riesling 95% of the time so that I drink wine, so I I love making Riesling. <laughs> um, and then you just mentioned um, Muscat. Um, why do you like that varietal so much? I, I just like the smell of Muscat. You know, to me, the, the Muscat is, a, is a, a grape varietal that is of any of the grape varietals that you can taste in the vineyard. It's the truest to its form in the bottle. Um, when you taste and smell a grape, when you go out into a ripe Muscat vineyard, uh, during harvest time, it smells the entire vineyard. I mean, you're standing out in the middle of the open and all you smell is muscat. It's just, <laughs> it has an, an amazing aromatic to it. And it's, it's just such a beautiful smell to me. I really enjoy it. And third law, thirdly, it's a great wine because it can be a lot of different things, but it, it's a good wine to trick people because muscat inherently always smells sweet with that, with that uh, okay, it has, uh, and the muskiness, it's just that it, it has a sweet characteristic, but you can make a nice dry wine out of it and that's a fun wine to kind of trick the mind into thinking it's going to be one way and yet it's so different. Mm -hmm. Do you think that varietal is going to grow in popularity in Oregon? Um, it'll grow in popularity a little bit. I mean there's, there's quite a few more smaller producers that are doing some fun stuff with Muscat. I know Melissa from Stoller is doing some things with her label and John at Ovum's doing stuff and um, 
Is it Irie that has the, or Erath? Erath has the. No, Irie. Irie has the yeah. dry muscat. Um, so I mean, there's there are definitely more people doing muscat, and I don't know, will it ever grow up and be a big thing? No, probably not. I mean, people are people are very shy of muscat because they do think it's even more so than riesling that it's going to have to be sweet, which it is a lot of times, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be bad. Mm -hmm. And then can you talk a little bit about uh, what makes the Ural Amity Hills AVA unique and growing, uh, uh, making wine in this AVA? Uh, well, I mean, I like the AVA because it's, I, I prefer cooler vintages, so I feel it's the coolest area of the valley, so even in the fact that we have so many warm vintages recently, we, we still have a tendency to be able to keep a little more cool characteristic in those style of vintages. They are a little bit more of a struggle in the coldest vintages, but to me, those actually make the best wines. I mean, consumer-wise, not necessarily, but 10 and 11 style vintages in the Ola Hills, when you can bring everything in and your Rieslings are 10 and a half to 11 and a half bone dry, and the Pinot I had at Temperance Hill was, I think, 10, eight, and it's like, they're actually amazing wines. So to be able to have the opportunity to make that style of wine here, I think this is a good, good area because there's just so many. We have a lot of different facing vineyards. We have a lot of different people of age, a lot of older vineyards here. And it's it's my favorite. We buy from about, I think, 32 or so different vineyards total. Mm -hmm. And uh, a good portion of them are Heal, Amity Hills. Do you visit all of those vineyards around harvest time? Yeah. Around harvest time, mm -hmm. I, I try to get out to everything. Um, Claire helps me during pre-harvest, kind of summer, and working up into everything is kind of my eyes and everything when I'm doing a lot of traveling. Mm -hmm. But during during harvest, we all try to get out a little bit and look at them. Is it hard to like manage what like how you want that like the pruning and um, like? All that no, all not in the, not in the sense that you know a lot of these we don't we don't have 32 different vineyards every year. We have okay. 32 pretty much of the same vineyards every year. And some of them, I mean, like with Ralph Stein at Yamhill, we've had that fruit since 98 in the Riesling and had the Pinot and stuff off and on mm -hmm. for a lot of years. We, we, we have good relationships with our growers. We know how they grow. <coughs> if, there's a, if there's an issue or something arises or something, they'll contact us and let us know that we need to look at something or we need to do something about stuff. But you know, you put a lot of reliance on your growers for the fact that they've been growing for 30 years, a lot of these guys, they know what they're doing. We don't need to be out there every day staring at it, looking during the growing season. I mean, that's, that's really what, what their job is. That's what a grower does, is they pay attention to their stuff. So if you're, if you're worried and you feel you have to be out in that vineyard, to me, every week or every few days or something else, you're buying the wrong fruit. You're buying from the wrong grower. And so that's, that's what I think is the most important part, is just to, to pick the people that you work best with and that you, can, you feel have the best idea of what their vineyard does. Uh, what are you most proud of um, in your time in the industry? Ah, most proud of my time in the industry. Our proudest um, moment. You know, to me, what I'm most proudest of is this right here. I mean, even today, I mean, making it to this point. I mean, I think what we've done, 
has surprised a lot of people. Um, and I think it, it's, it's made a lot of people really excited. So uh, to me, I'm very proud of being able to build a facility like this to be able to have, I, I always think of my proudest part of being at Brooks is the fact that we have about 30 employees total. And so I feel like I'm a part of my community and I'm part of supporting my community. And to me, that's being able to business. We don't want to build a business where we have to hire two, 300 people. I mean, that's, that's support too, but to be able to have 25, 30 people that really rely on you for their income and their livelihood and everything, that's, that's what makes me very proud. And uh, so recently, Pascal has been coming down to help me out with Harvest. Um, whenever he does that, do you ever try to gauge um, what his interests are in wine, if, it, if there's any at all? No. No. <laughs> not, not really. No, with, when Paco's around, I just, I don't know. I, I try to be there for him, whatever he needs, but I don't ever try to influence him on anything so yeah. I just I don't know I like to just be a friend with him he's just a, he's a good kid he's he's done a great job I want him to figure out what he wants to do uh, what's in the future for Brooks Winery um, future Brooks Winery uh, I think I think basically I think continuing to do what we've been doing in in the sense that we would just want to continue to make good wines have a good place for people to come to. I, I don't think we really want to grow a whole lot anymore. Um, we fluctuate. So this year we fluctuated a little bit more than normal. Uh, but I, I think just cleaning things up to me, um, the next couple of years I just want to finish a few things on the property, put in a, I want to get a flow form in, I want to get, I, I want to just kind of clean things up. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's <laughs> that's the future for the next couple of years. Um, as far as the brand and everything, I think we'll just, I mean, I think we're going to just hopefully be pretty consistent at this point. I mean, I think she's really happy about kind of where we're at. Um, are there any um, other varietals you want to try out? Any like experimentation do you want to do in the next couple of years? Uh, I had... Uh, I had Dick Crannell plant me an acre of Gamay last year, or two years ago. Last year, early last year. So um, I definitely want to be making Gamay. We have Tempranillo and Petite Syrah in barrel, so that, that'll be our first time with those. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, we're, I'd, I'd like to, we're looking at, we have half, half acre down at Muska to put another, uh, another white in, so we're trying to figure out something that might be a little more interesting. Uh, Blake over at Orchard Fold is going to put in some red Riesling, which there's a couple hundred plants, I guess, at Oregon State that he found. Mm -hmm. And so he's a, that's a Riesling vineyard that two acres. Um, he's putting in another couple acres, so part of it's going to be red Riesling, so that'll be interesting. Adding another Riesling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so what does the future of the Oregon wine industry look like? Uh, future of the Oregon wine industry seems to look great. I mean, I, I travel a lot throughout the year, and so 
the establishment of the Oregon Pinot Noir especially, but I mean a lot of Oregon other whites, even aside from Pinot Gris and Riesling, you're just starting to see more and more in the markets in a lot higher capacity. So to me, I mean, we have more people coming in, everybody seems to be growing, so the, the Oregon wine industry looks fantastic. And I think we have a lot of room for growth, really. I mean, there's definitely, there's, there's a, lot more that, a lot more that can be grown here besides what we're already growing. And I think that there's, I mean, there's really no ceiling. And then what advice do you have for someone that's looking to join the uh, wine industry? Work really hard. When you get an opportunity, wherever it is, whatever it is, work really hard on and pay attention. That's, to me, that's the best, best thing you can do as an employee in the industry. That's what people in the industry are looking for. Because we want really hard workers. Because it it's not an easy industry. It's a lot of physical labor and it's a lot of really hard work. But aside from the hard work, it's a lot of paying attention. So. I would say if you, when you get an, an opportunity and you get a position as an intern or anything else, work 10 times harder than you'd ever think of working, and that's how you'll succeed in the Oregon wine industry. Good answer. <laughs> and that's all our questions. Do you have anything else that you want to say, a nope. question I should ask? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time out today. Not a problem. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.